Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Today we have with us Nuran Osman. I'm very excited because it's uh, like I advertise, it's one of my role models. And yeah, we'll be honored. Shukran for coming and having an interview with us today, Nuran. Yeah, welcome. Okay, so we're going to just jump into the questions. We're going to start with, so who is, who is Nuran Osman? <laughs> Uh, so I, uh, I'm South African, yes. I'm almost 40 years old, a single mom of four children mm-hmm. um, and Alhamdulillah I think I've worked in the community for the most part of my life mm-hmm. um, and I really really enjoy the South African experience and, and just being able to make a difference in the lives of others. Okay. So um, going back a little bit, um, can you, do you mind telling us a little bit about where you come from, a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, just those, just a little bit of your background, basically. I am born and raised in Cape Town and started school at four years old. Because uh, my mother thought I was smart. I don't know if I'm convinced of it, but <laughs> Alhamdulillah, I managed to finish uh, matric at 16. So I'm in a, a Sansusi girl's well, high school. Stop you finished matric at 16 yes. years old. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a Sansusi girl's high school alumni. And it, it's funny because obviously now it's made headlines around violence. And I work in the field of gender yes. violence. Um, and then I went on to study at UCT. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later pursued a, a degree at UNISA. And after that, I moved to the US. Um, and now I'm back in South Africa for many years now, but um, that's my life. In terms of my childhood, I think it was stock standard, you know, growing up as a young Muslim girl with paternal and maternal grandparents' yes, influence yes. and um, learning the culture, the cooking, the eating, the behaving um, yes. and, and all of that. And then also, I think both of, of my maternal and paternal, paternal families had a strong philanthropic focus and so that okay. influenced my life um, until the death of my paternal grandmother her, her biological children did not even know that she did a soup kitchen um, for wow. the school children opposite her home so um, and she, she cooked for the children quite regularly yeah. she was very fond of books and yes. that's why I'm a bookworm I read yes. a lot um, and my maternal grandmother used to sneak me some of her pension money to go and give to this one and give to that one. Mm-hmm. And no one else knew about it. So I think I was almost chosen by my grandparents yes. to do the work that I did. So you, you were the only one that knew she was doing all of these Yes, wow, both amazing. of them. Um, but also my, my parents yes. also spent a lot of their time and resources on children. And my parents threw a soccer club, interestingly, yes. took children from a, a poor Cape Flats community to play football. Yeah. Um, and I remember early on, I think I was six or seven years mm-hmm. old, going to Port Elizabeth with all of these children who yes. were going to play in a football tournament. And my father would transport them on the back of a truck sometimes to just yes. get them to, to play in the football league. And I think so I was early on, I was shaped mm-hmm. toward um, the kind of work that I do. Okay. I didn't actually know you stayed in the U.S. Yes, for I did. So for how long and why were you there and what was that experience like? Um, so I was there because the father of my children was working mm-hmm. there, though, and Oxley, and so all of the South African auditors yes. went and we stayed mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley, so okay. it was right there. Um, I was focused largely on mothering because I had two young children, one okay. was two and the other one was brand new. Yes. Um, Alhamdulillah, it was really amazing mm-hmm. because we, yeah. um, we, we managed to see a mm-hmm. different uh, experience of Islam. Uh, 
I don't want to say more or less, but I want to say a dynamic one. Like, yes, I remember going to massage in all over all mm. over the US, where um, every day there was something going on. Mm. One of the massages had a restaurant built inside. The other one had one of the the massage, mm. um, or the other one had a um, a boxing ring and a swimming yeah. pool. And so, really amazing to see Islam in North America. And I'll be honest, I miss it very much. Yes. So, so really different and like sounds almost more inclusive or... I think so. Yeah. I think for me, the, yeah. I noticed a lot less intolerance and a lot less um, sectarian, inter-sectarian mm. conversation, not conversation, but debate. And mm. I just think people are so focused with Islamophobia, obviously. And we were there soon after 9-11 mm-hmm. uh, with Islamophobia. I think Muslims are just focused on being Muslim and getting the Islam right, also for the sake of the children. Yes. Um, but, but amazingly, I mean, the amount of women you see in hijab in the parks and just walking past the women and, and people just greet each other. Yeah, in Cape Town, I know half of the community people just don't greet yes. um, each wow, other. So even that is really nice. And for example, you go to the park for a picnic and there'd be other families and everybody would just say, let's eat together. Uh, why don't you just bring your food? Where are you from? And so you learn about other cultures. Um, I mean, I, I learned very interesting things from very interesting Muslim people. A, a Chinese Buddhist sister who embraced Islam became a very dear friend of ours. I don't think at that point I knew that there was a place called Guyana. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, mm. but Muslims from there, um, people, Americans would embrace Islam mm. through their fight with Islam. Yes. So phenomenal, phenomenal wow. experiences. That is amazing. And then obviously there's a much more bigger appreciation for the religion because there was one at one point they were against it and now they've embraced it. Totally. That's amazing. Totally. And I don't want to sound as though I'm comparing. No. I yeah. suppose it's all very exciting when yes. you move from your homeland yes. and you, you're living somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. But I think for me, I, I just found, especially with my mm. children, I found a more child-centric Islam in, mm. in um, North America mm. than I do here. Yeah. And sometimes we are like we do, we are in a little bubble where we don't know how things are on the outside. Yeah. Um, okay, so just, so with regards to Yihata Shalta, coming to that now, how did... How did your involvement in these start? Because you were the, you see, you just actually you know, no, but you were the director for quite many years. Um, and so how did your involvement with Ihatash after? So, an interesting one, I was working for Islamic Relief South Africa at the time, and we tried to support the efforts. The shelter was quite small, mm-hmm. so it's, this year, yeah, I was 10 years old, and I've been oh. here 8 years, so I'm okay. part of the furniture. Okay. Um, so we came through um, to, to assist, but also previously my job at Positive Muslims, which was my very first job, um, it meant that I engaged <laughs> with... Uh, sorry. It's okay, no problem. <laughs> you can't be a you can't be a... It's fine, it's okay. okay. Alright, so... Uh, so my first job at Positive Muslims meant that we supported um, the the shelter also um, through awareness workshops and counselling and those sorts of things. After that, um, I think I was on maternity leave actually. You know, it's hard to remember because I have four children, <laughs> one of whom just kind of imposed the much she can come and sit if she'd like to, it's but, not a problem. So, I, <laughs> this is the challenge with being a working mother, the boundaries are quite blurred, yes, aren't they? Yes. But, the, so, the, the, I was on maternity leave and the, the chairperson of the board had asked to engage um, the organization and then say that, like, like, what can I offer the organization? And I came in and assisted and then after, after the assistance, I decided I wanted to be here, so, yeah. so I wanted to stay here, which I then did. Yeah. Um, 
And do you know, I, I, interestingly, the other day I joked and said, I don't know that I have a, a contract to yeah. work <laughs> with that. Yeah. You just but kind of fell in. I know, yeah. you yes. just become part of the furniture. Yes. And so every board that we've had, I said, um, I need to sign a contract. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll get you one. <laughs> so um, I've been here for a large part of the 10 years of the organization. But I think it was also about coming in and seeing what more um, we can offer because Muslim shelters don't really exist in mm. South Africa. And I don't think gender-based violence is always a priority for South African Muslims. Mm. So when I came and said, okay, let me see what I can add, having worked in HIV and gender-based violence at Islamic Relief, mm. I decided, okay, hang on, I want to stay here. Yes. So I stayed and stayed and stayed and <laughs> still here. Yes. Alhamdulillah. So just tell us a little bit about what Ihaka is. So it's a shelter okay. for abused women and yeah. children. Um, but what does the shelter actually offer? Um, and was it established out of a need? How did that happen? Um, so as far as I know, the founder of the organization started Islamic Resource mm-hmm. Foundation of South Africa, so IRSA, mm-hmm. and tried to help many people in the community um, to empower themselves, to strengthen themselves. But more and more, it seemed that women were coming and saying, I don't have what I need. I don't have resources. Mm-hmm. I don't have support. My family say, I should just tolerate, you know, whatever he's being, is being dished to me because I could have been worse off. And so suddenly I think there was a, a, a realization that the need for Muslim women to receive sheltering and holistic sheltering, and I'm not talking about a bed and breakfast service, yes. um, was, was so dire. And so the organization changed direction slightly and started taking in a few women. Ironically, our house mother today is one of the first clients of the Arthur Shelter. So she's been here 10 years and I've been oh, here she's eight. amazing. <laughs> she totally is. So everybody knows Ati Kulsum yes, or yes. Ati Kuli. Yes. Everybody knows that she's the point of call. Yes. But she understands the experience of the women because she's lived the experience. Yes. I don't think Ati, Ati Kuli says she will retire here. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that she'll ever retire. She's very hardworking. Mm-hmm. So when I came in, I realized that I didn't know anything about sheltering, mm-hmm. but I knew things about gender-based mm-hmm. violence. And so I sat down with Ati Kulsum and said, if you teach me everything I need to know about sheltering, I could teach you something else. And so we did a trade-off. And each day she taught me how the shelters run. She makes a stock standard joke and says she's been in every shelter uh, for abused women in oh, Cape Town. Wow. So I think that means that she knows everything. everything she's about the expert. Yes. So I think she taught me what I know today about sheltering, mm-hmm. and we've just built on that. Mm-hmm. And then as the years grew by, we decided to grow the programs because it wasn't enough to provide the women with a place to stay and meals to eat. She, act- the, the client, she actually needs so much more than that. Now, one of the reasons that, so we, when we draw our little logo and our clothing brand and the aprons and the bags that we make, we do I heart A, so E heart A, but is the heart because we think that fundamentally if we give all the love that we can to the women and the children, it can, it can hasten the healing. So what we offer is, yes, we do have a bed for each woman and child. We have three, actually they have five meals a day because they have two snacks in the day. Um, and particularly the children, they're very fussy. They want to dictate what their snacks are. So yes. in the morning, Auntie Kuli knows what needs to be made for that day. Um, and so we provide also sewing um, a sewing program. We've been making bags with Shreshwe and um uh, aprons as well, so the African fabric mm. gives the, the African feeling because we are proudly African. Um, and then we have a 90 day program, so that's 90 days of what we call rewriting your internal hard drive. And so it's teaching or facilitating for the women to have new patterns of behavior, new ways of thinking about yes, things in the yes. world. 
Um, and then we've got, um, we're very proud of our youth development programs now, two years old, called AGEMS, so it's the Academy, Academy for Growing Exemplary Members. Mm -hmm. And these are young people from the Cape Flats who we've empowered to, to come out of gangs, to stay away from drugs and to develop for themselves a, a positive identity and to also be able to become peer educators mm -hmm. to influence other young people yes. in the community. And we're very proud because three of our current staff, no, four of our current staff are young children who were behaving badly in the community, who came through our program and yes. now work here yes. as peer educators. And they're phenomenal role models. Um, and then we've got a gardening program. So the gardening program is just not about planting. It's about comparing um, the seedling and whatever you're planting to your own life. So when you dig a hole, that's where you find yourself in yes. a hole. And then when you compost it, that's all your pain, hurt, all your suffering. And then when you plant the new seedling, that's your new life. And as it grows and you nurture it, that is how you grow and nurture it. And um, typically it's vegetable seedlings and, so, and fruit. We've also got fruit trees, about 40 of them on the premises. But when they harvest cabbages, for example, they use it in the kitchen or we sell it um, to the local hospital. Um, and we also help the soup kitchen with it. But they feel so proud. The women feel so proud of the achievement because they've produced something. Um, and so, you know, we can then yes. compare to their life yes. story. Um, and then we've got a creche on site and a nursery. And the reason we separate the two, two groups of children is because um, the younger ones often become victims to the older ones who have already witnessed violence. Okay. And so we keep the babies a little safer than they would be mm -hmm. with, for example, their own mm -hmm. siblings. And then we teach the older children yes. how not to be violent, um, which can sometimes be difficult because they themselves are quite angry mm -hmm. um, and have witnessed many things. In my eight years of working here, I've never heard three-year-olds speak of what my daddy did to my mommy or what my mommy did to my mm -hmm. daddy. Because also more and more we're seeing some of our clients, few of them, but, but they are there, mm -hmm who say, I am the perpetrator, I have caused problems in my home. And one simple example is that, so a client comes into the shelter, she claims abuse, she knows what to say to get to get a place here in, in the screening. And once she's here and we say, right, we'd like to now work with your perpetrator and see if we can reintegrate the, the family and get you back into, you know, functional society. Um, he comes and says, I've never eaten in my life, but she sold all the furniture, she throws things at me, she stabbed me four times in my arm. And then our clients start, um, the few that have had this experience, open their eyes and realize that they have a, a, a big role to play. Yes. And I'm very concerned about the levels of violence against um, men and boy children in the mm. community because to speak about it, I mean, there's a lot of stigma, there's a lot mm -hmm. of discrimination. Of stigma, yeah. um, but some of the studies are now indicating that, for example, with adolescent children being interviewed in schools, mm. they're finding that the amount of girl children who are being molested and the amount of boy children that are being molested are often often boys are higher in, in the molestation mm -hmm. case and sometimes it's it's you know mm -hmm. on par what concerns me first is that children are being violated yes. what concerns me secondly is that there's a whole lot of unreported cases mm -hmm. and i think the world is moving to to a time where we're starting to say hang on mm -hmm. we need to be looking at human rights this is very challenging for me because i work for the rights of women i work for the sheltering of women but more and more we're seeing mm -hmm. boy children um, and men who are mm -hmm. being violated and I think that speaks because even when you said the stats to me now, I was—I mean, I was surprised. Um, and I think that if that in itself speaks to um, what society perceives as okay, yeah. Um, or you know, like you said, it's just so many um, that we don't know about. Um, so if you can maybe speak to us a little bit about the challenges within community and what you would say to, you know, you know, just to the challenges of. To come for people to come forward with these stories. 
the perception of when males are abused, it's looked at a little bit differently. Yeah. One of the challenges, and sometimes I, I'll be honest, some of the sometimes I get very frustrated with the challenges we have here in Adafel, but they are simple. There is there is not a culture of listening. We we don't listen to each other. We speak at each other. We scream. We shout. Um, we speak ugly to each other. But we never sit down and say, what's actually going on? I mean, one of the things we struggle with when we're working with our clients is to teach them not to speak over another person because it's so normalized. Um, but also many of the people that we work with, because one of the programs that we also work on is, and I forgot to mention it earlier on, but we work with women who are incarcerated. And when they are paroled and they have nowhere to go, they come and live with us in the shelter and we try and reintegrate them through skills building and so. But even there, we've got a group of 36 women who really don't give each other the space to just speak and just listen and be present and to know that I also have a chance to speak. There's, there's none of that. One of the other challenges we have in the community, I think, is there is no method or or should I say a workable method of conflict resolution? It's swearing, yeah. beating, yeah. Um, you know, throwing bricks into glass windows, but there's no space for saying, let's work this out. Yeah. And, and I'm very interested to see in this community that people don't talk to each other for years and years, but they live right next door to each other. And when you ask, so they, they often ask us to help because we almost serve as a nerve center here in Haderfeld. When we say, what is it that you're not talking to each other about? Because that's another challenge. I think people don't call a spade a spade. They can't remember, but they know that it's a 12-year-long feud or something like that. <laughs> yes. So if you can't remember, does it still matter? Yes, yes it matters because we've got to be angry. I find also with the young children we work with, both in the schools um, and here on site in our programs, is they don't need a reason to be angry. They just can be angry. And I understand that it's linked to systemic problems like poverty and oppression and the legacy of apartheid. Mm. But for how long are we going to blame this? And at which point are we as adults... And role models to these young people going to say, let's teach them how to talk to each other, not at each other. But I find it with the youngest children in our shelter, they could be three years old and they'll have a squabble of notes. And then mothers want to get involved. And then, you know, so it it perpetuates. Sometimes I wonder which is worse. The fact that our communities don't have enough to eat and enough resources or the fact that our communities have no skills. And I wonder sometimes if we develop sufficient and I hate that it's called soft skills because it's not. Yeah. It's basic yeah. necessary skills for life. And I wonder if we develop those skills, will our communities not become more resourceful? Yes. Because then, you know, I have the notion of, for example, empathy or compassion. So therefore, I care because, you know, Aisha doesn't have, I have. I care about her. She's my neighbor. Let me share with her. Let, let's discuss it all. Let's make a plan for her. And I know our communities were built on those, very strongly built on those principles where you just went next door for half a cup of sugar. And why yeah. half a cup? I don't know, but we borrowed a <laughs> half a cup of sugar. Or And the neighbor would send back a full cup to say yeah. thank mm-hmm. you. Or, you know, two eggs. Ask auntie mm-hmm. next door for two eggs. And I don't yes, think that happens so lot, much. It's a lot of, for each, to each their own kind of, to, yeah, we each look after our own. And the, the competition, you know. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, my, my 16-year-old daughter asked me a very interesting question. She said, I wonder why, because she volunteers in this community too, and she says, I wonder why... People in this community will have their water cut off, their electricity cut off, they won't have food in the fridge, but they'll have Nike shoes on their feet. And the Nike shoes the one is wearing has to be better than the other uh, person's sneakers, for example. And then I said to her, you know, I think it's largely about feeling good. And that's the other thing that's very challenging in the community. People don't feel intrinsically good about themselves. And so the way I'm going to feel good about myself is through dressing really well or having a really fancy car. You know, all of the other resources are, you know, not there, but 
but I've got this and it makes me feel good. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, I, I taught in Mitchell's plan for a couple of years and even there parents didn't have money for school shoes, but um, or for school fees for that matter, but the children had everything they needed in terms of an Xbox and you know, nice yes. fancy sneakers yes. that are often bought on mm. credit at some fancy yes. grand name store. So it's it's about priorities also. Mm. In the shelter we try and teach the women what matters. Mm. I don't know that they always listen, but we try. <laughs> yes. I was actually when when I was here for a little bit and then I there was a program that was very interesting for me. We there was it's about actual just basic mannerisms and yeah. you know, lady things yeah. and I thought that was very interesting because a lot of the time a lot of that is just lost totally. in the process. Yeah. Totally. You know, in, in our society, especially I think a lot in the Muslim communities, um, there is the shunning of, especially when someone comes and they tell you your child's on drugs or your, there's a lot of shunning, there's sometimes there's not even just shunning, there's let's not speak about it at all. Um, what advices, if you could speak to the parents, I think, more than, more than the youth now, if you could speak to the parents of those, of those youth, what would you say? Do you know, one of the things that I want to scream off the rooftops of the shelter sometimes is just please get the real. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it's, it's a silo that we've created for ourselves in, in the community that it's like, I mentioned to a colleague the other, it's like a parallel universe that, that people live in. Like, the, the youth are struggling to express themselves. And, I, and I'm not saying they're entirely innocent all of the yes. time. I mean, we've got young people who have come to our, our youth development program who have run drugs for gangs and are looking for a way out and it wasn't because they were under-resourced at home but it was possibly because um, there were other issues structural issues at home Um, notwithstanding the fact that many of the parents for example in this community fathers are not always known to the children the children are and if you ask the mother she doesn't know who the father is Um, or the father is incarcerated or the father is active in a gang um, and this obviously impacts particularly young boys quite badly. And young girl children, um, w- one of the children said to me the other day that my sisters hate my father because he keeps promising that if that he's going to stop using substances. And every time he relapses, my sisters really feel it. I understand, and he said something very interesting. He said, I understand that he's just her. Um, and one of the things I often say to colleagues when, when colleagues are frustrated and annoyed at our clients is hurt people, yeah. hurt people. Now this is a 16 year old boy who tells me my dad is just hurt. So I think it's time for our generation to start looking at our hearts, to start being able to, to be open to discuss our hearts and to name them because there's a lot of shame, blame and guilt around what we've experienced, what our pain is. Um, and the blaming part is easy. We can blame our parents, we can blame apartheid, we can blame poverty, we can blame so many other things. But at which point do we sit ourselves down and take responsibility for, for our own pains? Yes. And I think the more parents heal themselves, children... Well, one, they'll complement your healing. Children can be incredibly comforting. But more than that, the children have an opportunity to be um, their truest selves and to reach their truest potential. And one of the things, because I'm responsible for parenting programs within the shelter, and one of the things I often say to the mothers is that if you allow your children to see your true colors, you give them the opportunity to be their true selves with you. So the mothers will report that the children are lying. My child constantly lies to me. How old is she? 13, 14. I say, are you listening in a way that allows your child to speak the truth? 
Because even many of us grow, grew up in homes where we were chastised and punished, and I'm, I'm not against chastisement and punishment. I am against hidings. I don't like them very much. But the reality is, are you open to hearing what your child is really um, struggling with? And we must remember that substance use disorder is a brain disease. But more than that, it is a masking and a numbing of pain. So if your child is using a substance, they are not naughty, they are not delinquent, they are not uh, being influenced by their friends because, you know, it's always the neighbor's children's fault that your child is using substances. Your child is numbing pain. Where is that pain? So one of the other things I want to say about the study that spoke about the molestation of, of boy and girl children is that children felt, in general in the study, more children felt safe disclosing their abuse at school than at home. And that's scary. Because we're safe space. Totally. And we are creating a mountain of responsibility for educators who are already overburdened in a somewhat interesting education system. And now we're making it their problem when our children cannot come home and say, Mom, someone's touching me inappropriately. And one of the other things I see as a pattern in the shelter is young women who coming to the shelter, having been, uh, having experienced marital rape, and that's really a program for another day, because I think a lot of Muslims are in denial about the fact that marital rape exists. And I see it often, you know, the husband is a substance user, he's high as a kite, he's coming home and he's forcing himself on his wife. If that's not marital rape, then I don't know what is. But one of the things I notice with the women, because 80% of our clients, just over 80% of our clients here in the shelter would have experienced sexual abuse as children. It becomes a pattern in their lives. But one of the first things they say to me is, you know what, Nuran, I couldn't tell my mother because she wouldn't believe me. Or the second thing they say is, I did tell my mother, but she didn't believe me. And the third thing they say is, I did tell my mother, but she was so in love with my stepfather that she couldn't realize my reality. So she threw me out of the house while protecting her husband. And we've had one very serious incident where after many, many years and many confessions and many issues and a lot of violence, the mother in her own anger and unhealed pain stabbed the stepfather to death. And she was the mother of one of our clients who we then tried to assist and support through that process. Um, You know, and we've seen it a couple of times. Many of our clients have resorted to violence to to defend themselves. Many of our clients, and I'm not justifying it, but act out in a violent manner against their, their partners who possibly are not often violent, but they act out against them because of what other men have done to me. I believe that if we don't heal the women, primarily the women and the men, but primarily the women of our society, the children are going to suffer and they are suffering. And the reason I say primarily the women is because in this community where I work, many fathers are in gangs. I'm not sure how to work with gangs. I do try with gang members, but it's very difficult working with a kind of big systematic challenge um, problem. But the mothers are are primary guardians, breadwinners, providers. I mean, I I heard a comment the other day. It was very interesting. I think I was up at the day hospital. We were trying to set up support groups for for Muslims who are are HIV positive. And one of the comments were, you see all the mothers standing at the bus stop in Mannenberg um, going to work in the morning. Where are the fathers? They're incarcerated. They're in gangs where they're dead. And so for me, the focus for me is on women because I see that women are taking the lead in in rearing their families, raising their families. The challenge is if the women are unhealed, those patterns, particularly with mothers and girl children, those patterns repeat in the girl children and the girl children feel unworthy and they feel violated and they then continue, you know, marrying men 
who perpetuate the yes. problem. So it becomes so cyclical mm. that we sit with a sick society mm. and that's scary. It's a lot of information to take in. I'm just trying to absorb everything you're saying and <laughs> thinking of, no, and it's it's a very good, I think, eye-opener and um, just to think of all the things that you must have witnessed. And But I was just wanted to bring us back when your child walked in. It was actually quite wholesome, <laughs> I think, that you walked in and it was just such a, I mean, because your mom first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking of your, your children and the kids here and just youth in general, what is it that you know gives you hope and excites you? Um, particularly in our gym program, so it's paramilitary yes. style, but what we've done is, for example, the highest rank is a general. So we've got a, a female general and a male general. Yes. We've got a female captain and a male captain in, in each rank. And the children enjoy the ranking. Now, yes, it is similar to the gang yes. um, system, but it it is that, and my children, uh, my older two children participate in the program, mm -hmm. and my daughter and son mentioned that we're a good gang. And so it is true, we create similar for the children because gangs in this community are so attractive. Mm -hmm. And so we've created for the children um, a ritual handshake. Mm -hmm. They've got their own little song. They've got uniforms, which they love showing off on, and they've got epaulets and everything to show their strength. They drill, um, they have initiation, which is really important because I think our communities have lost the notion of rites of passage and so the children are not sure whether they are still children or whether they are actually adults mm. and so we're creating for them into adolescence a rite of passage and each rank has a different rite of passage um, and what gives me hope is that children don't want this life of crime and violence it's often and i'm not justifying violent crime but it's often a cry for help uh, it's it's a desperate um, call for attention because any attention is good attention yes. in this community. Negative attention is as good as any attention. Chances are the only time your mother really responds to you is when you're doing something out of line. She stands on her stoop wearing her swell coat screaming at you in front yeah. of the neighbors. But hey, she paid attention. If you came home and said, you know, mom, I did really well at school on Friday. She'd be like, yeah, I just be no. Mm. And the children, they know this. So they, they act out in the, in the most interesting manners. One of the other services that we provide as, as a shelter is that we support the Manenberg um, uh, SAPS, the, the police station um, in the victim empowerment program and the VEP room there. And there is where I truly get to see what's going on yeah. in both Manenberg, Hederfeld, um, and maybe even a little bit of Google too. And the, the children are desperate for help. I had the privilege, the Brigadier allows me um, to engage a lot of people who he thinks uh, are very hurt. And one of the, the criminals he allowed me to speak with was somebody who was caught with a gun and is apparently a hitman. And, a lot of other things and when I sat down with him for a solid hour I was very shocked because what we see as a hardened gangster criminal hitman was a very very broken young man and so finally when I built rapport with him the one question I asked him why is it that you do what you do and he says you know one of the biggest challenges in my life is that my mother never has never accepted me she didn't want me as a child I had to sleep under the stairs of the house, so it's those, you know, masonette flat homes. Mm -hmm. He had to sleep there, and at some points when the house was too full, he'd have to, he'd have to sleep outside, and she'd just give him a thin blanket. And he'd say to me, you know, like a tronc base, like that. Mm -hmm. So then I said to him, do you think if your mother accepted you, that you would stop your nonsense? Mm -hmm. Now, part of what the discussion could be about is a manipulation of feel sorry for me I don't have a mother or my mother doesn't care about me but there were some points that really told me and, and touched me in the heart was 
the whole notion of my mom makes such a big fuss of my sister, but she's also a substance user, as, as am I. My mother chastises me about my drug use, but not my sister. Um, and then he said, you know, all I want is for my mother to just hug me. This is a 30-plus man. I said, your mother's never hugged you in your life? He says, no. Even as a child, I wasn't allowed to hold her hand when I crossed the street and I was petrified of crossing the street, but she wouldn't touch me. Now, I ask myself multiple questions. If we start treating our boy children as we, and I'm speaking of the, the good parents, the functional parents, if we are affectionate and kind with our boy children as we are with our girl children, well, that might heal something both within the child and within ourselves. Also, if we are averse to touch, then what is it about us that we need to fix? Um, and I don't, I don't come from an affectionate family at all, but my kids are all over me because I think one of the things I've had to do is to, to allow myself. And the children in the shelter don't give you any mercy. They climb on you, they wipe their snot noses on yeah. your jeans. They don't care. They just, they just know that they can hug you and that it's safe to do so. So each day when I come to work, I've got to hug at least 13 people before I get... Little yeah. people before yes. I get to my desk. <laughs> but I think those are things that, that, that really strike me is when we work in the prison also. it's There are many mother issues, many father issues. I don't know. I wish I could hug all the parents in the world to make it better so that they can make it better for their children. And the parents, like for example, the women who are incarcerated, if we can make them better, then they can go home and make it better for their children. Mm -hmm. And for some of them, I say to them, how long are you going to perpetuate your bad behavior? How long are you going to carry on doing what you're doing whilst your children are watching? The same thing that you complain about your mother, you're now doing to your children. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I never thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge. We're not thinking about what we are doing to others mm -hmm. because, you know, we're struggling, we're surviving. It's all about capitalism. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to life than mm. stuff, isn't there? If you could choose, because I'm sure it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to choose, but if you could choose one like one moment, what would be the, the best moment for you with regards to the work you do? If you could think of one thing that really stands out for you. I have millions of things. That <laughs> That's what I say. I'm sure it's going to One thing that, that makes me really, really happy is when we can work with both victim and perpetrator mm -hmm. and get them to a place of understanding. Now, this doesn't happen often, but we, I've, I've had a couple in the past eight years, a couple of incidences where the husband and wife are able to see eye to eye and say, mm -hmm. oh, okay, I take responsibility for this. You take responsibility for that. Let's do better for our children. Yeah. Um, one other thing that makes me very proud is we have, we have staff like Shyam and Rashida, mm -hmm. and they don't mind us sharing their story because mm -hmm. they share it all the time. Mm -hmm. But we met Shyam in Polsmo, um, and she was a serial offender. I think Shyam had been in and out of jail for 12 years. Um, and we met her there, and she admits now, and I knew it on that day, that she tried to fool us with all of our conversations. Shyam was running <laughs> with gangs and doing all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. But on the day that we arrived for an interview, she was wearing like the tightest scarf I've ever seen in my life. And she was just inshallah and mashallah. And we were like, are you serious? Like we work with people every day. <laughs> Uh, and she's just begging for a place to stay. And when she was released, she just plugged it off. She didn't come to the yeah. shelter. <laughs> Only until a month or so later, when she couldn't cope anymore, she called back. And I said, yeah, I'm waiting for you. But she almost turned her life around completely. And so last October, when we took over an orphanage just one kilometer down the road, she became the, the parent wow. um, to those children. And two weeks Amazing. ago, one of our staff members who passed away had girl children who were then taken into foster care. And... Interestingly, the, the, you know, the child care um, service called us and said, are you able to take this child? And I, I asked Chiam, 
And I don't think she even thought. She just went, yes, we can take her. Um, and last Friday, the court granted um, Sham an order that says that this child can live with her until she's 18. Now, we saw this little girl with, I don't like the labels, but ADHD mm. and all of that in our shelter. We went to the janazah of her mother who passed away, mm. and this child is now back in our care. Mm. And so Sham takes care of the orphans, and she's really like the Pied Piper because she walks around with all of these little Children people behind her. Yeah. Um, and they look for her, and they when she leaves to go to, because she also manages our charity shop, mm. when she leaves, they stand there with big eyes, like, when are you coming yes. home? What are we going to eat? What did you bring me? And so she's, she's really like Mother Hen. And Rashida, yes. who struggled with substance use disorder, is now determined to work with substance using women and, and does often um, and even I think also having been a client in the shelter and now being able to manage as the house mother um, there are some phenomenal stories when you can make something out of someone then there, there's nothing more rewarding for me than that so what happens once your patients leave do you have any after service okay well? we um yes we do um, one of our ex-clients we just appointed her to our team on Friday. So um, the clients are with us for six months and we do a very intensive program. They're busy every day of the week, including Saturdays and Sundays because we're rebuilding lives that have been destroyed. Um, and then the last part of our 90-day program talks about career development, job placement, and all of that. So often they leave the shelter because they found employment and they have some money. And then um, they can come back for aftercare, so they can come back for coaching, counseling, um, food support, their children can stay with us in the creche and the nursery and they can pick the children up at 4.30 in the afternoon whilst they go out and either seek work or work um, at no charge and also our clients just have a habit of just coming around and saying can I help with anything um, and typically then you know there's something wrong, something's not working out well, um, can we help them. Some of our clients we've even offered lifts to their children to school while they go to work because it's in the area for example. Um, so yes, and then do we have repeat clients who leave the shelter, come back, leave the shelter, come back? Yes, we do. We have many because gender-based violence is something that is revolving. It's a revolving door kind of um, symptom. And women are always hopeful. They they hope that when I go back to him, you know, I'm going to be okay. I hope when I go back to him, he's going to have learned his lesson and stuff. So when they come back and they say it didn't quite work, he's beating me up again. I'm throwing things at him again. We're screaming at each other again. The children are not happy. We're like, okay, let's try this again. Some of our clients have been here six times, so they do keep coming back. I just want to go through the, so there was a complete sentence thing, I don't know if saw it. We can just quickly run through it, just to get yeah. to know a little bit more about you. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to ask you the beginning, and then you can just finish the sentence. Sure. As quickly as possible. Well. Sure. Okay. Okay, so Allah is? Most merciful. Love is? Children. The world needs? More love. <laughs> Happiness is? Uh, smile. Smiley faces. Success is? Uh, making a difference in the lives of others without seeking any benefit for yourself. Being a Muslim to me means? Caring about those who nobody wants to care for. Like I'm thinking of this, this you know, it's not nice that people say you, you have a face only a mother can love. It's those people that need our, our help the <laughs> yes, most. Yes. Uh, and leadership is? Uh, I think presenting an example, it's showing people how to live well rather than telling them how to live well. Okay, okay so I just want to ask you currently, um, what are you kind of busy with right now? 
Okay, so we are restructuring our, our staff uh, complements a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're also expanding because we're going to be do- doing HIV testing. We're going to work with men, which alhamdulillah is a dream come true for me because I I don't ascribe to feminism and mm-hmm. this ism and that ism. My ism is called humanism, mm-hmm. if there is such a word, because I, I care about people regardless of their gender. But we're going to start creating interventions that allow safe spaces for men to speak for men to get tested for uh, tested for HIV, um, for men to get supported on their substance use disorder. Um, and so I'm very excited about that, inshallah. We also, we are very proud, our donor, Muslim Aid Australia, MAA International, have chosen us to, to su- support and start the South African yes. branch, and that's on its way now, inshallah, and that will take more of my time away. I'm going to miss the women and the children, yes. but that is really important because it means that we have more resources for more projects in South Africa. And our youth development program is expanding rapidly um, and the children are loving it and we want to take it into other communities. We've started taking it into high schools. We want to take it into the very vulnerable communities. One of the other things we do is that we we support and train some ulama around um, social issues like gender-based violence, HIV. Um, So we'll be be going out to Ocean View next Mm. week, inshallah, to work with with the masjid committees around health and welfare and capacitating Mm. um, that community to do better for their own community. So those are the things that, that we're busy with currently. We hope, inshallah, to acquire more premises because we, we have 16 projects under one roof and it's really getting a little tight. We're starting yeah. to work on each other's nerves <laughs> because, you know, we're in yes. each other's faces all the yes. time. But I'm very excited, particularly about our young people. Mm-hmm. So the average age of women in our shelter are between 18 and 35 and our peer educators are between 18 and 21. And so we're very excited to send them out into the community to reach more people. Um, just for um, people watching, because there's so many projects and things that would like to get involved, um, how can they go about contacting you? Or? The easiest way is uh, through the website, everybody loves social mm-hmm. media, so it's www.ihatashelter.org.za. Um, easy enough, my email address is director at ihatashelter.org.za and our landline is 0216385578. Okay. And last question <laughs> I'm going to ask you is um, if you, so your final message just to everyone watching, um, if you can just like sum up and yeah, a final, final words of advice basically. I think, I mean, every little effort that anyone can make to change the life of another is important. So if you're giving a loaf of bread to a charity once a week, it makes a big difference. It's, there is no big or small when it comes to good deeds. All good deeds are, are good and help others. But I think um, when we were nominated for the Businesswoman of the Year Award, my conclu- con- concluding statement was, if you need a hero, become one. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. It's been an honor to interview you. Um, <laughs> and wish you all the success for the future. So that's it for today's show. We hope we added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.